you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Coming up on Huddle and Flow. I had to tell him that too sometimes. I had to be like, just, <laughs> just two pieces. You better, remember, you better remember where I'm from. Like, I know yeah. y'all just seen this ESPN and all that. Yeah. We mean the streets is different. <laughs> See what I'm saying? Because when you, you try to bring that energy to me in person, this ain't going to go down like you think. Okay? So from I am the from, D. I'm from the D. I'm from the real hood, not the rap hood. So I'm just <laughs> like, no. <laughs> you going to get the, all the smoke you asked for, all right? <laughs> All right, it's Thanksgiving week here on the Huddle and Flow podcast. I'm Steve Weiss, joined with my man Jim Trotter, who I am thankful for, for knowing for decades and being my, my brother from another mother, my producer Thomas Warren, just an outstanding young man. And Jim, we're wrapping up week 11 as we come into this Thanksgiving week. Interesting, interesting time, interesting week right here, huh? Every week, as you know, Steve, the closer we get to the finish line in terms of the regular season, uh, the more interesting it gets. So games take on a heightened import- importance. So for me, yeah, you're right. This uh, this was a very interesting week. Yep, we saw a lot of teams who were in the kind of that six and three jumble go to seven and three or six and four. Um, but Jim, we also saw some some really intriguing things with quarterbacks this week, and not the big performances with like Derek Carr and Patrick Mahomes and. And things like that, but the backup quarterback situation in Carolina, Teddy Bridgewater, who hurt his knee, he's getting ready to play. And then his head coach, Matt Rules, like, you're not right. So we're going with PJ Walker. And he puts a 20 0 donut on Matt Patricia and the Lions, the, 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 the Houston Roughneck, the former Temple QB, comes out and gets it done against the soon to be former head coach of the Detroit Lions. You know, 
I'm hesitant to say anything here, Steve, because I hate to wish bad on anyone. But Matt Patricia has been so far in so far over his head since he got there. And I'm not going to go back and revisit all of the Jim Caldwell um, things, which I can and should, um, that you fire a coach who won at least nine games three out of his four years, and now you have a coach who basically can't get out of his own way. Um, and look, let's not focus only on on Matt Patricia. Bob Quinn's fingerprints are all over this as well. Oh, yeah. And in my opinion, he should be held accountable as much as Matt Patricia. So it's just interesting who gets the benefit of the doubt and who doesn't. Well, and also props to P.J. Walker and Matt Rule and all those other guys in the Carolina Panthers who stepped up. Also, the interesting backup QB story, Taysom Hill. Thought it was going to be Jameis. Finally, at the end of the week, it's going to be Taysom Hill. He comes out and plays really well against the Falcons. Now, now, Jim, we saw this last year when Teddy Bridgewater came and the whole Saints team stepped up. And we saw them this week step up eight sacks against Matt Ryan. Um, Latavius Murray was really good. Michael Thomas finally has a big game. But there was nothing to make me think after watching that game that Taysom Hill can't play. He, he looked He looked fine to me. Yeah, the one thing that struck me is that I was in New Orleans last year when Teddy Bridgewater started his first game in place of Drew Brees. And I'll never forget, even though the Saints won that game afterwards, Sean Payton was, I don't want to say he was down, but he was very somber. And he said publicly, you know what, I've got to do a better job, meaning he was going to have to fit the offense to the skill set of Teddy Bridgewater. And he did that going forward. And you saw Teddy's numbers get better and better. And I believe that that played a role here to where Sean Payton said, you know what? I'm not just going to run what we run. I'm also going to run what best fits Taysom's skill set. And he did that. And I thought I thought Taysom played well. Look, he's not Drew Brees in terms of accuracy, all those sorts of things. Um, but he has certain things, obviously, that Drew doesn't. And Sean played to those strengths when you talk about his ability to run. But here's what I'm fascinated about going forward, Steve. Taysom made a point of saying that the guy he was going, that he felt most comfortable with and wanted to get off was Michael Thomas. So when defenses, defensive coordinators, start taking away or attempting to take away Michael Thomas, I want to see where Taysom goes at that point. Can he get off that first read and get to the second one? I'm not going to be a prisoner a moment and say, this guy's arrived, this guy can get it done. I believe he's a good player. But I need to see a larger sample size before I can say, for instance, that I would turn my team over to him for a full season. Yeah, I mean, he's going to go through some ups and downs. But, you know, also what, you know, was really cool about the aftermath of that game was head coach Sean Payton going on the troll brigade on Twitter. Former Falcons wide receiver Roddy White was talking about, oh, okay, they're going to give Taysom Hill up against the Falcons. Well, we're going to go ahead and handle our business against him. How dare they do that? So Sean retweeted that, which Jim kind of is a nice transition. For me, we've got great guests on who are masters at the Twitter execution. Whew. Yes. <laughs> we've got Jamel Hill and Kerry Champion coming on from Stick to Sports, a great TV show on Vice. They don't just they don't just come for your neck on Twitter, they come for it on the show because they are real. And, Jim, for, for us, we, we talk about it over and over. We love to elevate our sisters. It's so real. Everyone we've had on, you know, Maya Wiley and Soledad O'Brien. And, but this is Randy Johnson fastballs. 
Ain't a whole lot of curves coming in there, Jim. There's some straight heat. No, it's it's high heat inside. So, um, look, these are two of my favorites. You know, I worked with both of them when I was at ESPN. I met Carrie there. I had known Jamel before then, or at least known of her. And um, the thing that that's so impressive to me that I love so much, and it's about all of our guests that we have on, is their intelligence and their 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 willingness to just give it to you straight, no chaser. And they're going to educate you as well. So I, I just have so much respect for the two of them. Um, and, you know, what really stands out to me as well, there's a lesson to be learned here when we talk about female empowerment or just empowerment in general in terms of being your own boss, owning your own company. And I respect that about both of these women who have, you know, their own production companies. And, and hopefully we're going to see a lot of great things coming out of those companies. Jim, that's a perfect segue to a more football conversation we have before we get to these wonderful women. Brian Flores, head coach of the Miami Dolphins. They're riding high with the rookie Tua, right? They go to Denver. Tua's not playing great. Denver's all over him. He's holding the ball too long. He doesn't look comfortable. Um, I don't think enough is being made out of this. Some things I heard, he was on the injury report all last week with a foot injury. And he took a shot that looked like it aggravated the foot. But, of course, Brian Flores is saying, it's not injury related. If you're out there, you're playing. But as soon as as soon as the you know the hurricane started coming ashore, put two on the sideline and put Ryan Fitzpatrick out there for cover. What about him making that change mid-game? Look, I, I have tremendous respect for Brian Flores, and I'll say up front, he knows his team obviously better than I do, or you do, or anyone else on the outside. So with that as a backdrop, I will still say. I was surprised that he made that change. I was disappointed that he made that change, but maybe he knows something that we don't. But I believe once you decide that you're going to go with that rookie quarterback, it's a ride or die situation. And unless you believe that irreparable harm is going to be done either psychologically or physically to that player, then you stick with him, particularly in a game like that, where it was not, you know, out of the realm of, of them still winning that game. So, um, that's how I feel about it. I believe Tua should have stayed in and, and, and they should have ridden with him. Do you think the fact that they're in a playoff hunt forced this decision? Or, I won't say forced it, but but kind of you know greased the skid, so to speak. No question. I should have mentioned that. I believe that, number one, the Miami Dolphins internally, if they're being honest with themselves and with everyone else on the outside, they're ahead of schedule in their rebuild. This was not supposed to be the year that they would be in the hunt for the division title, and yet they are. And so if you're Brian Flores and you're Chris Greer and others – you're competitive and you want to win. And now you see an opportunity to win. And they thought that maybe by, and Brian thought maybe by putting Fitz in there, they could, they could come back and steal one and stay in the hunt for that division title. But I believe that you, if you have a plan, you have to stick to that plan, especially as it relates to developing a young quarterback. And if your plan was that when you believed, when you put Tua in there, that he was ready for that moment, and that he could take this team where you wanted it to go, and you were going to give him time to learn on the job, then, then in my opinion, you stay with him. This year isn't supposed to be about the playoffs. If you get there, great. But stick to your plan. Jim, perfect transition. You talk about Brian Flores and the Dolphins sticking to their plan. Well, our guests, Carrie and Jamel, were told, like a lot of us, stick to sports, which is something they don't do on their show that airs on Vice, and it is something we show enough 
didn't do in this conversation with Jamel Hill and Kerry Champion. All right, Jim, now we have some very special guests, a dynamic duo. We've got Kerry Champion and Jamel Hill from the Stick to Sports show on Vice. It airs Thursdays. Be sure to watch because it is the real deal. Ladies, welcome in. And Kerry, I, I know you're fired up. We're here in L.A. The Lake Show had a very strong weekend. They, they got a repeat written all over it, right? Someone came to my house with six bottles of wine this weekend and told me to be excited because congrats on our back-to-back. That, that, that somebody is sitting in a box right next to me because I want you guys to know we were celebrating for many things, right? But can y'all believe that? Where we get all this money wait. from? I don't care. But wait, wait, hold up. You know, the reporter in me has to stop right there and ask this question. <laughs> okay. Six bottles? Uh-huh. Not one? Yes. Six? Yeah, because she has a wine uh, cooler, a wine fridge, rather. And so the whole point is to make sure the fridge is amply stocked. So, yes, because it's a look. It's about drinking wine, but it's a look. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. See, that that was my next question. Did you go through all six in that one evening? Uh, We did not. Mm -mm. Okay. Jamel's Jamel's on 1942 because she's rich and fancy because she got a TV show now. I... (laughs) I, however, just stuck with my $10 bottle of rosé. But I'm telling you, <laughs> let me tell you about the Lakers. What happens is this. It's interesting. Someone from the organization sent me a tweet from a, a guy who shall not be named who was so bitter with Rich Paul and Clutch Sports for, um, you know, obviously helping the Lakers make moves. But I don't have a problem with that. And I have to talk to you about that. Um, others have been dominating the game for years. So why can't this young Black man and his friends make some money and monopolize? I think it's completely fine and as long as my lakers especially are the beneficiary of all such greatness i'm okay with all of it guys what about you Uh, i i'm i'm more than cool with it the only thing is it's not gonna matter because you know my boys up north from my hometown oh uh, uh, no clay that clay breaks my heart here we go here we go here we go you know (laughs) look we were talking about this before we even came on here for 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 my team to be willing to pay for the ownership to be willing to pay a 130 plus million dollar luxury tax to get it right shows their commitment to winning so i'm all about that i'm good and carrie look if it's not my team I'm uh-huh. cool with your team, but it's gonna be my team. Uh, we can yes. talk about the, the Pistons too, Jamel, if you want. No, let's not. No, let's not. Let's not. Let's not do that. Let's, let's, let's not do that. <laughs> that's a got, different type of pain. It is. We, we got we got 45 centers on our roster right now. We don't know. <laughs> no, but there is a vision. There's a plan. I believe in the plan. We have a we have another process going on in Detroit. Okay. Yeah. But Jamel, you guys are killing it with the show. I mean, the fact that it is so fearless and unfiltered. Where you guys are right now with the show how how do you think it's going and what, what type of impact do you think you guys are generating <laughs> well this is an interesting day to ask um so <laughs> no um just because we are in the process of having some strategy meetings so and i think you guys have been in this game long enough to know that when you're beginning and starting anything there's going to be some growing pains and there's going to be some adjustments and you're just trying to tinker and figure it out and make sure that the product is as good as we as it can be and that's what we're doing right now um, but overall, I mean, I would say that this is definitely a moment because you have two black women in the late night space, um, sort of talking about sports, but not talking about sports, um, uh, in a way that is, um, reflective of the time that we're in, where 
you know, athletes, as you know, they have refused to go back and stay in these boxes that people want them to stay in. And they want to be very clear about their political and social, about their sensibilities. And so we not only talk about that stuff, but we also talk about just politics and news and current events and pop culture and all those things in general. But I think because we're with Vice, um, a lot of people who maybe knew us from our ESPN days where we had to be a little bit more politically correct because that is Disney and there is uh, certain sensibilities you have to be aware of there. Now they just get in these middle fingers and that's just, <laughs> so it's like they're having to adjust in real time. Yes, they are. <laughs> yes, to sing Carrie Curse and, uh, you know, be her unapologetic Black self as, as I am being too. And that is a beautiful way of saying that sometimes I am with the and so <laughs> I just wanted to be noted I was not the first person to cuss on this podcast. Okay, it's all right. <laughs> no, our show is honestly our first season. While it was still again a labor of love, I think we we were able to do some things that people just weren't that were surprised. I think we positioned ourselves now probably in a better time slot and a better day. So that's good for us. Um, but I still feel like she said, like with any new show, there's growing pains. It's a new network. We're used to doing things differently. So we're figuring all of that out. But at the end of the day, um, I do believe that here is the all of the wonderful, what I like to call the bomb in all of this is that we are, I believe, are giving a word and, and, and talking about stories that matter and things that matter for the culture. And if we're not doing anything to uplift our culture, to build our culture, to be unapologetic about our men, our women, and how we're being treated and how we've been treated in the sports world and beyond, then we're not doing our job. And I feel like we're able to do that in a way that is really special. And I, and, and, it's in a way that we hope not just Black folks, but everybody gets behind. Because if not now, when? You look at this summer of social reckoning, you look at what has happened, the differences, you've seen how people have been treated, i.e. Colin Kaepernick, and other, I mean, just outright outrageous behavior, right or wrong. You know, I always want to be on the side of right when it's all said and done. And I think this is a way that we can do this with this show. It's like, it's definitely a love letter in so many ways to the people who've been so suppressed. You know, I'm, I'm interested, Carrie, in, in watching the last episode where both of you, your straight no chaser was phenomenal, both of you, um, where you talked about for those 70 plus million who voted for Trump, you've basically shown who you are and we can't be cool. Right. We're not friends. No. And I wonder what was the response to that? Um, because I've had people hit me up talking about just because I voted for Trump, doesn't mean I'm X, Y, and Z. And in my mind, I'm saying, I can't get with somebody who is telling me, in essence, I don't matter. And anyone who looks like me does not matter. So what was the response to what you said? Oh, the same thing. I had a ton of people unfollow me, which was great. That's fine. Um, I've had people that I know, athletes in the business, like one, one, one NBA player was like, how are you just going to tell somebody that? That's not fair. I said, sure it is. That's my choice. That's my opinion. And I was like, I didn't choose my luxury. I, sh I chose liberties. Black folks don't vote based on luxury, meaning I, I, I get with Trump because it'll be better for me in terms of taxes or I'll have, I'll make more money or he'll, he'll make my personal life and, and my financial life more convenient. I don't have that luxury, but I will be affected by a quote unquote bad tax plan if in fact I voted for Biden. I'm just saying that's what people are saying, right? So, but as, as a black person, as a marginalized person, 
we don't have that luxury. Civil liberties are are what we need. Like Trump is okay with us being forgotten and and and, and pushed aside and calling people who have swastikas, you know, fine people. You know, none of that stuff is okay. And people will often tell me, I'm not a racist if I voted for Trump. I said, but you're okay with his racist tendencies. And as a result, that means you are by default, in my opinion, someone that is okay with racism. How are you not upset by that? How are you not disturbed by the fact that he's sending the National Guard out on a group of Black protesters? Like, could you imagine a bunch of Black folks walking up to um, any type of city hall with their guns, demanding that they go outside and not wear a mask? You know what I mean? What kind of, that's the most oppressed you've been. You know what I mean? Well, Jamel can speak to this. Jamel, what would happen in Michigan if Black folk had walked up to the state capitol with AR-15s and whatnot and tried to take over the building? First of all, we're not going to get our hands on any AR-15s. Like, <laughs> no. it never happens, right? And so no. it, it's funny you asked me this because this, this morning I um, I did a podcast with the governor of Michigan, Governor Whitmer, and we talked about that. And, um, you know, it, it, it's right now it, people who want to be oblivious to the double standards, the two systems of justice is they're just choosing to, to be that because for a lot of people, racism is frankly comfortable. And... Um, we not only have the situation in Michigan, we have right now where Kyle Rittenhouse, who murdered two people during a protest, is being considered a hero. You have the fact that he was able to 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 post two million dollars, a cash bond based off donations from um, Chris- oh, Ricky Schroeder no more. I'm yeah, I, him no more. I mean, I was like, just kill my childhood. Thank <laughs> you, Ricky Schroeder. So between Ricky Schroeder and Christian evangelicals and others who donate, who really think that somebody who is 17 years old who purchased an illegal weapon, ironically with, st- with stimulus money, um, is allowed that system of justice. But Khalif Browder, who was in Rikers for three years, two of which is sol- solitary confinement, for stealing a backpack, allegedly, that he never stole, and then committed suicide afterwards. If you don't look at these two examples of what justice in America mm. looks like and how different, and you can't see that difference, then it's like you don't either want to see it or you're okay with it. So to Carrie's point, the people that vote for Trump, even for some Black people who did, who used that same excuse and said, um, my taxes and this and that, Black people need to realize capitalism isn't going to save us. That's not going to dismantle racism. No matter what, we can't pay our way out of it just like we can't educate our way out of it. We can't achieve our way out of it. The only reason it gets broken is like we have to break the system completely down. And that's not going to come with siding with somebody who constantly tells you your dignity, your humanity, your respect is completely conditional. I'm glad you brought up this Kyle Rittenhouse thing, because I mean, of all of the bull stuff that has been going on, I don't know if anything has really triggered me as much as this. Like as many people like this dude is being held up as a hero, as a martyr for going to Kenosha, Wisconsin, shooting three people, killing two. And he is worthy of your donation. You got people out here hungry. You got people out here dying from COVID and you're going to give money to free this cat who now is like, okay, is he really going to go to jail? Because you got potential jurors who could feel this way. No, that's a serious serious question. And, uh, you know, you have but we have to look at our history. I mean, our history. Had, literally gives us the blueprint for everything that we see and everything we will probably see, unfortunately, for years to come. White vigilanteism has always been acceptable, has always been tolerated. You know, those those photos you see of the KKK, who's standing next to them? The police. 
in a lot of them, right? Because that has been the order in this country and how we have used, um, you know, authorities, uh, the authorities to terrorize people. Kyle Rittenhouse was walking around in plain view in front of the police with an AR-15. And they were like, all right, sir, thanks for helping. It's like, thanks for Thinking, yes, thank you. But yeah. you know what? We had Ta-Nehisi Coates on the show and he said something that was so powerful and so profound. And he said he hadn't been giving or he had thought there were times when Obama was probably too passive during his presidency, but it was more about the lack of skepticism that he had for white people. And he said, that's arguably why he became the very first black president because he didn't, he wasn't as skeptical as, as many of us are. And you need to have that quality to speak to everyone, to speak to the people. However, he said the level of depravity that, that, that some white people have, we should never underestimate it. They have always been willing to kill for themselves, meaning they've always been willing to be, as you just said a moment ago, Jamel, some sort of vigilante in the name of justice, their justice, their special brand of justice. We don't operate that way. And so if we did, because we don't have that luxury. And for that, we need to call a spade a spade. I'm ready for this smoke. We have to do it now, especially with our platform. We cannot let these people get away with thinking that it is okay to vote for that man or that man represents anything other than narcissism and his own personal justice, his own personal brand of justice that doesn't represent ours and that will never protect us. But you know what's interesting to me, Carrie, is that I've gotten to the point now where I I don't even pay attention to him to some degree. It's the enablers that my attention is focused on now when we talk about Congress and Mitch McConnell and whatnot. And, And I look at it and I say... I don't know if they think we're blind mm. and we can't see it, but it's like, it doesn't matter. They're just telling you straight to your face, mm-hmm. you don't matter. And for, it blows my mind, for instance, that one man, one white man can hold up an anti-lynching law. Now, in the history of this country, you realize we do not have a federal anti-lynching, we do not have federal anti-lynching legislation. And one man, one white man, Rand Paul, was able to hold that up this year. And it just blows me away. So it's like on the one hand where this is where I I struggle with it at times where people say we have to work together. But I'm like, bump it. You know, we've tried working with these folks. It's not working. And the Democrats need to have a little bit of a backbone here and say, you know what? We don't care what you think. Here's what we need to do to preserve our own. Does that make sense? It makes yeah. perfect sense. Perfect. Jamel says it all the time. She refers to Martin Luther King quote of moderates. They are the most dangerous. They are mm-hmm. the most dangerous. The people who don't think, who live right in the middle. We're not talking about Trump per se, but those who live right in the middle and then decide to vote for him. We can't try to bring them to our side in a way in which we think discussing will help them. It's like, you know, my thing when I talk about white women and the passive aggressiveness in the workspace that we've been socialized so differently, they'll never understand me. They will never understand my inability to to not want to just put my head down, do my job and go home and not want to make friends. So in the workplace, this always translates to angry black woman, which is just such a kiss of death for us. And we're difficult Mm -hmm. and all of the generic terms I can no longer pretend like that doesn't bother me. I've been trying all of my adult life mm-hmm. to be kind to them and help them understand and, and explain my point of view. They'll never see it. Carrie, you know this too. That's angry black man too. The first time yeah, you confront them or call them out. Because here's my thing. Like we had Arthur Blank, the Falcons owner on the podcast recently. 
And in his book that he put out, Good Company, and he talks about the importance of diversity and inclusion and all these different things. And then you go to his team website and of his top 19 executives, there's only one person of color. Hmm. And so you have to ask him, how do you balance the two saying one thing, but your actions over here show something else? And all of a sudden you're the bad guy for for bringing up a fact. (laughs) Exactly. You're the bad guy. You're angry. You're this. And the NFL, for instance, for all of this talk this year about social justice and the hashtags and the money that's being thrown around and whatnot. And you go and you look at the league office, you know, coming into this year of the top 12 executives, I believe only two were people of color. So you can't tell me that you're about diversity and inclusion if the numbers and the facts don't represent that. And I'm not here to say that that means that they are racist, but what I am here to say is, if you truly believe in what you're saying, then you have to be intentional about making change. And it's not enough to just say, we believe in these things. You have to show me how you believe in it. You have It has to be reflected in your actions. And I just don't feel that, that many whites see that where we want action now, not words. At least that's where I'm at on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's where I am too. Because um, a lot of the things that they do are performative. And mm-hmm. they think that they're doing something uh, with these statements and these grand gestures because uh, they want people to get caught up in the symbolism and not pay attention to the results. And so when Roger Goodell came out and he talk, he's talking about well, we should have listened to the players, let's just call it what it is. You didn't have the guts. You didn't have a stomach for this fight. And the only reason why you're in it now is because the public opinion has changed because mm-hmm. they've been able to see something as horrific as Ahmaud Arbery and understand what happened to Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. That's the only thing that changed. I find that I am largely insulted by these attempts. And, um, you know, we've all you, been- you didn't, get, you didn't get with the Black National Anthem this year? Hell oh, no. God. I was like, oh, she knows God. all the words. Jamel knows all the words. We know the words. They went to Howard, though. So they probably, like, you know, going yeah, to a PWI. They know the words. But no, I mean, the, the, the whole thing is that, uh, and I said this, you know, when the JC thing happened, that's all great. Mm-hmm. Fix the Super Bowl show. You know what you should fix? The fact that you still can't keep five, at least five black coaches in the league at one time. Like, you, you still can't do it, right? What is it right, now? That's, that's How about four? Four, four. four at the moment. But like, if you're making a deal with the devil, for lack of a better term, with anybody, what are the tangible things that we can see? Why not say within this deal, can we make sure that we have at least a dozen black head coaches in the next five years at minimum? Absolutely. And that, like, why not? Jay-Z has the power. They wanted his credibility. They needed his street credibility. And I don't know the particulars or behind the scenes, but I do believe Super Bowl shows was was just superficial, as Jamel would say, performative. That's that's truly performative. You know what's interesting to me is that um, when you look at history in particular, Black women have, have been at the forefront of change so often. And I look at it now, even when we talk about a- athletics and social change and whatnot, the WNBA was far ahead of anyone, in my opinion, right? Yeah. in terms of addressing many of these yeah. things. Yeah. And even now, I look at the two of you who I have so much respect for, um, on, on so many levels, but you guys are out preaching the word and trying to make change and telling the truth about many of these issues. And I wonder your thoughts now, just on seeing women in general, but particularly black women now getting their due and being out front in terms of, of these issues, whether we're talking 
political, when we look at the number of, of now um, um, black women who are taking political office, either on the local level or at the national level, um, even within the media now to hear the two of you and your voices now that you, you, you've left ESPN and you're able to speak your truths more freely, you all are so empowering, in my opinion. And I know I, I, even as a male, I draw strength from that from you all. Um, what do you see on the landscape now when you look out there and you hear so many voices and so many women of color who are now stepping out like we've had enough, you know? <laughs> Well, I think that's probably the last thing you said is is where we are. I mean, I, black women have always over overperformed. We've always had a certain amount of determination. We've always known that um, whether it was explicitly spelled out to us or it was just something that we just internally felt that we are sometimes the front, the the first and last defense. Um, we have, as Carrie said earlier, we never, especially black women, definitely can't vote in terms of luxury or approach our life that way because we have an entire community that we have to be a caretaker for. And so I think what has happened is that as we have become the most educated group in America, as we've seized more political power and mobilized it and frankly put the Democratic Party in a position where they have to deal with us. Kamala Harris is not on the ticket if not for black women, right? So knowing that, I think we're tired of A, apologizing for our power, B, um, we're just gonna seize it and not really care who thinks about it, what everybody thinks about it. And probably the third thing is that we're not waiting on these flowers anymore. And I, mm -hmm. I think, cause we know we're not gonna get them. Cause even with mm -hmm. what you see, you know, like I, I wrote about this for the Atlantic, don't let don't let's not make the same mistake that we made with Obama. When Obama got into mm -hmm. office, collectively everybody, it was a moment for this country. It was definitely a moment for black people. I'm not undermining or diminishing the significance. But what happened is that we took that symbolism and thought that that meant something on a grander scale or or that it would trickle down and it didn't. And the reason, you know, it is it, the reason that it didn't is because there were still systematic issues that people had with black men and black male leadership that were not addressed. And Kamala Harris, her being there, watch some of these things, well, watch what she went through already as a presidential candidate. And even in the early stages of her being elected, all the things that she is facing and is about to face, we have all seen some version of this story in ourselves. This doesn't mean that things will get better for black women wholesale or women uh, or Asian women overnight. If anything, it means the opposite. It's about to get worse, okay? Because that is considered to be a threat to what they thought leadership looked like. And sure enough, under Obama's time, there was a hate movement that was building mm -hmm. right that before people got, yeah. that, was, that is what we had to pay for the next four years. And so best believe Kamala Harris's yeah. presence is about to ring a whole lot of alarms because they don't want to see a second. That's what yes. this is going to be about, is how can yeah. we stop a second? And that's what we have to be aware of. You got to talk about, though, Kamala. I'm sorry I have to say this, Jay, because you about you preaching. Kamala represents every, every strong Black woman I know, and not in theory. She wasn't a safe choice, which is why I was so, like, because I didn't think she would get it. I was like, she's a real one. And in a sense <laughs> of, like, I'm going to be in your face. I'm going to tell you what's not right, and I hope you're okay with that. I'm speaking. I'm telling you how much <laughs> I love this woman. And then... 
the reality is, is that we never think about this. This is for all of us, Steve, Jim, Jamel, me. Whenever you're the first at anything you do, there are so many cuts and bruises that come with that that we never talk about. Being the first in every arena as a marginalized person, a minority, you name it, we are really taking so much heat and so much pain. And I think that's what's going to happen with her. I don't believe all Black women all of a sudden will get paid with their worth. I don't believe our voices will always matter. But what I do believe is that we have to continue the message of saying, this is what we want. This is what we demand. Well, but you still have the, we should have picked our own cotton crowd out there screaming louder than ever um, with the QAnon folks and the Kelly Loughlin. Hey, I mean, for real, I mean, you, so, like, so like you said, so like you said, we have to keep it up. And, and to kind of to that note, because besides just ex- exercising your voice, we had Maya Wiley on last week. She's running for mayor of New York City. Yeah. I mean, again, the black women saying, we're not just going to go along and, and scream. We are going to lead. And that's something I think Jim and I and so many people appreciate about you guys because you are, you're leading. You know, someone's raised by my mother. You know, it, it is just so incredible to see because, like you said, we've all seen some facet of this kind of in our existence of black women leading and carrying uh, so many of us through whatever we need to be carried through. And and with that, I mean, do do you think when you see what's going on because you know, we always get into this, is it a movement? Is it a moment question? You know, are, are we going to continue this ride or is this like, okay, whew, we got through these four years. How do you think this is going to continue, especially with you guys having the, the medium that you have to continue the push and to keep it constant? As we have seen um, in this awkward and, and very volatile transition into a new administration is the hate that was drummed up the last four years isn't going away. It is ever present. It is angrier. And so with that being said, I think that they're very much um, that this is more than just a moment. And so there is no room for us to relax. And I, I personally think, especially when we talk about the sports world, so many black athletes, I like to think that they look at what happened in the presidential election as a victory because the NBA bubble, which I didn't know how I felt about that when that started, mm-hmm. because There's a part of me that wanted them to stay angry. There's another part of me that didn't feel like America deserved to be entertained by them, right? Mm. Considering they had just told them for years to shut up and be quiet. Okay, I'm gonna be quiet, watch nothing, all right? (laughs) So I I was not sure how this bubble was gonna allow them to stay on message with the things that were important to them. You wanna ask Chris Paul about dropping 30? He was like, yep, I dropped 30, but let me tell you how you can register to vote, right? They stayed on message the whole time. And because of that, and LeBron's more than a vote, and all the energy that they poured into making sure that we remove this cancer from the White House, I know that they felt deflated after Jacob Blake and that their their efforts weren't doing anything. But down the road, months later, we saw with them forcing NBA owners or pressuring them to turn their facilities into voting centers. We saw what that did. You know, the WNBA... You mentioned, Jim, about giving them their proper credit about how these women have led because it was the Minnesota Lynx that started a protest against police brutality before Colin Kaepernick. Happened months before he decided um, to take a knee. For when uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock, who is Kelly Loeffler's opponent, Kelly Loeffler being the Atlanta Dream co-owner who has had several controversial anti-Black comments, anti-Black Lives Matter, like she's been on one. 
they couldn't get her out of the league. So they did the next best thing. They supported her opponent. When yep. Warnock was polling, he was polling at 9% mm-hmm. when they started. Welcome. 9%. <laughs> they wore his T-shirts. I mean, first mm-hmm. of all, they had a meeting with him to make sure that their values aligned. And they did. They loved him. They embraced him. They talked about him. They wore his T-shirts. And to do that, when they had a national stage because of the pandemic, all their games are basically on TV. Next thing you know, he in a runoff. And they mm-hmm. have single-handedly helped to maybe allow the Democrats an opportunity to take over uh, the Senate, which would be huge for Joe Biden's presidency. So I say all that to say, given what they've been able to accomplish, I hope they understand that putting their words and actions and the weight of their platform, their money, their resources, it does lead to something important and tangible. And while it is unfair to put it on the people most oppressed and victimized by racism, to also solve the problem, it's nevertheless the straw we drew. I would like, and, and I say this to Steve and I say this to Jim with all the respect, I would like to see much more accountability uh, when it comes to protecting our Black women since we are at the forefront of every movement. I would like to see Black men really come in, and they have, but really make it clear and unapologetic that you all support what we do, even if our message isn't on brand with your message. Oh, hold up. I, I got to jump in there because I got to ask you this. What okay. does that look like? It looks what does like, that look like? It looks like this. Um, if I'll make up something. If I go at Floyd Mayweather's neck in an interview and tell him he, it's not okay for him to continue to beat on Black women. y'all. Don't Although that's not made up. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And you really did do that. I did. Y'all don't jump down my throat and y'all don't call me a sellout and say I only date white men because, quote unquote, I have money. But the reality is, is that that looks like you being like, I can't believe Carrie said that she's not cool with all those people who voted for. Yeah, I can. And in fact, I understand where she comes from. We need that kind of support so they know they can't come to you and try to divide us. We're so much more powerful together than apart. And I and I I understand why y'all don't want to hold each other accountable because there's a bro code in place that I just don't understand. But there's a code in place where you don't, you guys just be like, ain't none of my business. I'm not talking bad about old boy. But I need you all to hold each other accountable and lift us up in the same process. Piggybacking off that, and I don't want to get into all the ESPN stuff again. That That's water under the bridge and whatnot. But Jamel, when you went through what you went through, I'm curious as to who surprised you in terms of support you got? Who reached out to you that maybe you weren't expecting to reach out to you? Um, first name that came to mind was Sal Palatonio. I didn't know Sal particularly well at all. You know, we we knew each other in passing. And of course, uh, anytime you anchor at ESPN and, and, and stuff like, eventually certain people like yourself or Sal will be on your show. And so I knew him that way. And I was really shocked when he sent me a very you know, warm and kind email and um, expressing his support. And um, yeah, that like com- completely surprised me. What about from outside? The building? Oh, ahead, uh, um, from outside, uh, probably Kevin Durant. That would, that would probably be one because Kevin, again, somebody I don't have a relationship with at all. Um, and so he sent me a direct message saying, I got your back. 
And I was really shocked. And I was like, oh, we, we literally have never had a conversation about anything. Jamel, What's so, so surprising so. is that Jamel actually like none of this bothered her. Yeah, I don't even realize she was going through <laughs> the fire. And I'm like, is everything okay? She's like, yeah, fine. You want to go drink? I'm like, I'm nervous. <laughs> I'm stressed. Why is the world not falling out around you? That's why she was able to handle that with so much grace and so much class and so much dignity. Well, because I had people like you I knew I could call and go drink with. That's why. I was, I, and I was beating up everybody. I was like, yo, don't do this. I hate but, but everybody. Wait, hold, wait, hold up. Let's, let's not minimize this because you received death threats, basically. Still. Um, Still, still receiving, still receiving. Still receiving. Still yeah. I mean, for you to be, and, and I read in the story that, that was recently written in USA Today about you literally being called out of a, a, a game you were attending because of what ESPN determined to be a credible threat. How did you do, how do you, how did you and how do you deal with that, you know? Uh -huh. Well, to, um, I was, to slightly clear that what happened was it was, this was a couple of years ago. It was the Big Ten Championship. Michigan State was playing in it. They assumed I was at the game, but I was not. I was actually watching the game with um, my then boyfriend, now my husband. We were watching the game together in South Carolina where he lived at the time. But the police department, the local police department had received what they thought to be a very credible threat on my life. And so they wanted to make sure I was not in Indianapolis. And if I was, you know, how could they get me out of there? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's jarring when that happens. Um, and I think maybe I was able to not let it sink in as much because I wasn't actually physically there. And so it was different. And then, you know, recently I had, you know, the FBI contacted my manager because um, somebody had sent um, what appeared to be or what they wanted me to believe was anthrax to a former where I used to live in, in, in Hartford. And they send it there and, uh, you know, along with a threat on my life. And so they just wanted me to be aware and they considered it to be a credible threat. And this, I mean, that we got this call when I was on vacation, you know? And so, um, and in addition to just the, the verbal death threats that I get all the time on social media, you know, in my inbox and that kind of stuff. And I guess the way I look at it like this is that while I am far more, careful with my movements, um, especially after the tweets and the controversy, I kind of had to be. Um, I'll never forget going to the Monday night game uh, right after that happened between the Lions and um, and uh, the Giants. And, uh, you know, ESPN security had to be there and plant it in the stands because, you know, they have been receiving so many death threats that had come in through ESPN. And while there's yeah. something kind of awful and jarring about that, um, at the same time, um, you know, it's not going to the intended effect is to make me afraid of, of every, you know, about what I say and to keep the to pressure off, to relax, to, um, you know, not be as vocal. And I just can't do that. And um, so for those people who feel like my criticisms of the president, my criticism of this administration, my outspokenness on racism and um, misogyny and other issues, if that's so bothersome that you feel like I don't deserve to live, then that says more about you than about me. Um, and so uh, even though it's created uh, uh, not necessarily chaos, but like it's created certainly um, some issues just in my family in a sense of their worry for me, uh, I just try to um, not really harp on it. And then to some degree as a journalist, 
you may not expect death threats, but I think we all sort of expect that we will be hated at some point, right? Because yeah. that's kind of that's right, kind of what, right. what the job is, is that you're going to piss people off. You know, what's our old mantra we live by? Uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And anytime you start afflicting the comfortable, then it's a certain amount of heat that you should uh, expect. And maybe it's just being used to it. I mean, I hate to say this, but I mean, I've been getting death threats since I was in college. Like, mm-hmm. so... It's just like, oh, another death threat. Here we go. You know, mm-hmm. and so um, it, it mo- mostly it makes me sad that these people exist and they feel the right that they can yeah. do this. But they are not they are not going to get me to, go, to come off message. They're going to still get these beats just as bad, if not worse. Two so pieces of mm-hmm. biscuit, Jay. They will. And look, yeah. I, have to, I have to tell them that, too, sometimes. I have to be like, look, <laughs> just two pieces you better of remember, biscuit. You better remember where I'm from. Like, I know yeah. y'all just seen this ESPN and all that. Yeah. We but mean the streets is different. See what I'm saying? Because when you you try to bring that energy to me in person, this ain't gonna go down like you think. Okay. So I'm from, I am the from D. I'm from the D. I'm from the real hood, not the rap hood. So I'm just like, yo, you gonna get the, all the smoke you asked for. All right. She's not and fighting me because she has too much money now. I did. Like, I'll get her sued. people. Like, Carrie, her her people will me. fight. I, her Carrie, people will fight. Carrie, let me talk my shit. Like, yeah. Talk your shit, my man. Okay. I know goons. That's real. I know goons. Okay, that my is husband, true. That is my true. husband, a gun owner. Say something. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, Steve, this conversation with Jamel and Carrie is so good that we just can't cut it short. So we are going to have bonus coverage. We will have another episode on Thursday, continuing this conversation with our two sisters there. And, you know, again, just their honesty, their frankness, their directness, and their intelligence is just so refreshing. Um, Because you know this, when we get around certain coaches or certain executives or whatever, they feel they have to kind of be PC. These two, they're just giving it to you, you know, And, and I appreciate that directness. Well, the part of it, you know, think about it. It's, you know, they've got a platform now and they're, they're unforgiving about it because, you know, look, we work for the NFL Network. They used to be at ESPN. No matter where you are, you have to, you know, adhere to certain guidelines. And when you don't, you can be out, as Jamel, you know, found out. So now Vice was like, here's your show. Let it rip. But the, be who you are. Yeah, and, and, and as, you know, as we know, the beauty of what they did is they charted their own path. Like all these people kept saying they got fired. They didn't get fired. They knew that that was not where they wanted to be. They knew that their growth was going to be stunted if they remained at ESPN. And that's no knock on ESPN. It's 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 um, kudos to Carrie and Jamel to say, there's something better for me. There is a larger purpose for me and let me go out and find it. And they have proven that the decisions that they made were the right decisions. And hopefully we all learn from that, you know, in terms of trusting um or I should say betting on ourselves. And once again, you know, regardless of what the, the lifestyle situation is, we're seeing women lead the way, which I am all down with. All right, Jim, real quick, the, this podcast is dropping on the day when on NFL Network, we are going to be unveiling the 25 semifinalists for the Pro Football Hall of Fame class of 2021. Um, but let's kind of keep it. You are a Hall of Fame selector, but let's kind of keep it to some of the first-year eligibles, right? So Peyton Manning, Charles Woodson, uh, Megatron, Calvin Johnson, 
um, you know, some of those who are going to be interesting discussions. Well, no, um, <laughs> no, not two, at least two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> two of them will not be an interesting, in, interesting discussion. They will be no brainers. So I say that, you know, Peyton Manning and Charles Woodson, I've been saying forever, and it's not unique to me. I think any anyone who has watched football would say that that these are two of the greatest who have ever played the game. And therefore, it will be a very short discussion when it comes to them. The one that is going to be fun and is going to be interesting, I, I don't know if fun is the right word, is Megatron from the standpoint, will people hold it against him that he cut short his career? And all I know is that he was the most dominant receiver when he was playing at that time. When you talk about that combination of size and speed uh, and physicality. So for me... I do believe that that he's a Hall of Famer, but it will be an interesting discussion because there are hardliners who believe that length of service matters. And another first time eligible, and I'm sorry I didn't mention him. We don't know if he's going to be a semifinalist, but Jared Allen, I would assume he would make it. But the uh, the pass rusher who was fantastic, I think he will be an, an interesting discussion. I'm looking at Tory Holt as a guy who's been in this area before as a possible guy who could be there, a guy like a Reggie Wayne. Because another dynamic we've seen, and you've been in the room, is wide receivers wait. Okay, we we know that you know some guys haven't haven't had to wait, but To waited. I believe Marvin Harrison waited. I mean, there were some there's some guys who who Andre Reed was nine years, Tim Brown was I think nine years. But yeah, no question. You know, the problem becomes Steve as we're in this fantasy football era. And this era where the rules changes have made it so easy and so conducive to throwing the football as opposed to running it, that how do you separate these guys? Because they're all putting up numbers. And that's where I think it's really important to be able to have context and have discussions about context. And I'll never forget one year, Tim Brown got upset at me before he was elected in because it had come, I had said during an interview that at that time we had Tim Brown Andre Reed and Chris Carter, and everyone was talking about how do you break the logjam? And just as an aside to try and explain how difficult it is, I said, you take into account things like context. You know, you have an Andre Reed who plays in Buffalo, where in late November, December, even January, it's very difficult to throw the football, be effective as that. And then you have others like Tim Brown, who played out in California in a pass um, centric offense. And Maybe it's a little easier to put up some numbers or to have more opportunities, I should say. I didn't mean in any way to demean Tim Brown or his accomplishments. I was just trying to provide some context on what the discussion is like. And I'll never forget Tim coming back saying, oh, I didn't realize the only reason that I put up these numbers is because I played in California in a, in a pass-centric offense. And, you know, at that point as a voter, you can say, you know what, this is why I don't talk about it publicly or whatnot. But I believe it's okay. Let's have that discussion. And, and I told him, I'm, I, I wasn't trying to demean or diminish what you accomplished. I was simply trying to provide some nuance to how these discussions go. Well, you know, as the selectors, you guys have such an, an incredible job, a difficult job. I'm on the Black College Football Hall of Fame Selection Committee. And, I, you know, just to get just to get it down to 15 every year is it's devastating to some of the people, um, you know, we leave off. So I just I mean, just a challenge of putting guys in immortal history every year has just got to be nerve wracking. And Jim, as we get out, there's a little history being made on Monday night football, um, an all black officiating crew, all seven officials for the Rams Buccaneers Monday night game 
were black. First time it's ever happened. One of the officials, Greg Steed, is one of our Howard University brothers. Um, I, I find it interesting, though, that I don't, I don't, I don't know, man. I guess in this year of of wokeness, enlightenment, whatever. Okay, let's put all black crew together. And and look, these guys, you know, have spoken publicly how it means a lot to them because they know a lot of guys before them did sacrifice and went through stuff. So I don't want to diminish um, what it means to these officials overall. But I don't know. I don't know how I necessarily feel about it. Again, I'm proud of these men. I'm happy of these men. I'm glad they're getting this opportunity. But is this to have the best officials on the on the field, or is this you know again another example of saying, hey, look, look what we as a league did to show we're about progress and diversity and inclusion. Look, Steve, I'll say this again. I've said it before and I've said it publicly. All of these things are, are, I mean, it's all great. And if you want to pat yourself on the back for it, that's all great. But to me, if you really want um, recognition in the right way, then it means you make systemic change and structural change. And for the NFL, that means having diversity and inclusion in the most powerful positions in the league. And until that happens, I think all of this is sort of um, an attempt to deflect, if you will, from the real issue and keep the focus away from the real issue. And that is that the NFL, like many other businesses, has work to do when it comes to diversity and inclusion. When you look at the top 12 executives, I believe it was, coming into the, into this season, only two of those people were people of color. In a league where the players are 70% black, that's just not acceptable. And that doesn't mean that you go out and you just hire black, but it means that there should be opportunities. And, and that's a key word here is opportunities for people to have a shot at, at, at those positions. Look, out in L.A. where we work, there are no blacks in position of authority in our building. None. And, and that's not me. I'm not trying to put anyone down who is in those positions, but I'm just saying, doesn't it make good business sense to have representatives from the community that, that, that look like the community that you're in and so that they can bring their life experiences and their work experiences and whatnot to the table. The problem is we don't now there's no one like us that looks like us who is involved with the decision making process. And again, I know I'm going to take heat for that from people internally for saying, why am I calling that out? But all I'm saying is, as Arthur Blank said in his book, Good Company, if you're going to walk the walk, you have, I'm sorry, if you're going to talk the talk, you have to walk the walk. It's time for the NFL to walk that walk. And by that, again, I mean structural change that shows that black folk are respected, that there is a belief that they belong in these positions, can do these jobs. And when we see that, then I'll be more eager to say, okay, we have the first all black officiating crew this year. Yeah, the clock is ticking, but the eyes are watching as well. All right, Jim, fantastic episode. Remember, on Thursday, we're going to carry on our conversation with Carrie and Jamel because um, it's just too good. And we don't want you to miss out so jim you want to you want to take us home yeah sure so look again we we appreciate all of you listening uh please subscribe and leave us a review tell us um what you'd like to hear so that way we can give you more of what you're funking for all right for jim trotter thomas warren i am steve white we're part of the howard mob and we are out
you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 